Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the Book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Join me in prayer, please. Lord, as we continue our study this morning of the Book of Romans, I just pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts and minds to your eternal truth. I pray, Lord, that we would rest in the Word's power, in its stability, in its usefulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the last several Sundays, we have been progressing through five questions that Paul poses the members of the Church of Rome in Romans chapter 8. And the five questions that Paul poses are meant to give us assurance in our faith. And as I've mentioned before, the true Christian faith isn't a static belief. Our faith is alive. It interacts with us in the circumstances that we find ourselves in every day. And in fact, the Christian believes that God is sovereign in using our everyday trials and tribulations that we encounter to mold us and shape us into the person that God would have us to be. And when you look at that verse that I've already preached on in Romans 8, Romans 8, 28, it says, and we know that all things work together for good. Now those all things just doesn't mean good things, does it? It's the good and the bad. It's the trial and the tribulations that God uses. And it goes on to say, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the purpose of our salvation, is that God has saved us to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, since that's the case, we have to recognize that the trials and tribulations that we find ourselves in in everyday life is part of the toolkit that God uses to shape us and mold us. And because we live in a world of trials and tribulations, and I think that we will all agree that in the amount of time that we've been living, that this is perhaps the most trials and tribulations that we've ever faced in our society today. And so because we are in those trials and tribulations and God is shaping and molding us, Paul poses these five questions to give us assurance. And if you'll turn with me in Romans 8, looking at verse 31, we've preached through 31, 32, and 33 now we're on to the fourth question, verse 34, but I want to read 31 through 34 to give our verse this morning some context. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge? against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, 
is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. As I started preaching through verses 33 and 34, which by the way are joined together, and they're joined together, as I mentioned last week, in a courtroom setting. So just as I pointed out last week, put yourself in a courtroom setting. It's the heavenly courtroom. And as I mentioned last week, if you and I were standing before the holy, omnipotent, righteous God in our own strength, we would find ourselves with a guilty verdict. But that's not who is on trial in the heavenly courtroom. It's not us in our own strength. Look closely again at verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against who? God's elect. God's elect. In other words, since I stand before God and since you stand before God, not in our own strength, but in the strength that we find ourselves in as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it changes everything. Now this doesn't mean that we get a get-out-of-jail-for-free card. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that believe that now. That Jesus Christ allows them to sin at will, if you will. And that's not the case as we stand before God as his elect. In fact, I want to point out another verse that Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, he mentions the elect of God again. So we're God's elect. We're not encountering a charge. But when you look at Colossians 3, starting in the 12th verse... Therefore, as the elect of God, there we are again, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, Put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Through him. So you see, as Paul points out in Colossians 3, as the elect of God, there is no cheap grace. We're called to be obedient. And the reason why I bring this up is the believer moves, the believer moves from works to grace. Because see, the unbeliever before Christ. We were in works. That's what's going to happen at the end of time. Is that for non-believers, the book is opened. 
And they are judged according to what? Their works. But God moves us. We're in the works category as a non-believer. We move to grace. And in moving to grace, we have the ability to live a righteous life. That's why in Colossians, right before he tells us to put on the things of God, he tells us to put off ungodly things. Put off, put on. Same type of similarity in Galatians, where in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. Something's happened when you look at these two analogies. Put off, put on. Works of the flesh, fruits of the Spirit. So what happened between those two contrasts? It's grace. And this is why I bring this up. Because there's some people that, even though they've accepted Jesus Christ, they say, well, I'm going to stand in my works of Christianity. I'm going to stand before God at the end of the time showing how good I've been. Look, I went to church. I went to Sunday school. I went to Wednesday night. I, I did this. I did that. We'll bring this up in just a minute in more detail. But this is not what's going to happen in the heavenly courtroom. It says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I'm not going to be justifying myself. You're not going to be justifying yourself. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. As we stand in the heavenly courtroom, as we stand in the heavenly courtroom, we're not standing in our own strength, both in charge nor in escaping condemnation. We only stand with the power of Jesus Christ. It's only through Christ. But it doesn't mean that we aren't accused. And I brought this up last week. If you turn to Revelation 12, Revelation 12, and I'm going, I want to explain this. Because it doesn't mean that there's not a charge. Revelation 12, verse 7, as we see the outbreak of spiritual war at the end of time. Revelation 12, starting in verse 7, it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. This is Satan, the accuser of our brethren. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. There's the charge, right? There's the charge. But look at verse 11. And they overcame him by, by what? 
And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Both charge and condemnation are escaped by the power of Jesus Christ. Not by works of righteousness that we've done, but by the power of Jesus Christ. Have you ever known someone who has served on a grand jury? My mother-in-law served on the grand jury in Galveston County. And she would go down and listen to the arguments of the local district attorney. And if you don't realize this, the grand jury is completely different than the regular jury system. And in fact, the grand jury system in our country is a wonderful thing because the district attorney has to present their case to the grand jury on the merits of charging someone with a crime. So before there's a charge or there's an indictment, there has to be a vote by the grand jury on whether or not the case has merit. Now, let's think about this in relationship to our verse. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect coupled with Revelation 12, which says that the accuser accuses us day and night. How do we reconcile this two? Well, there's an accuser, but there's no formal charge. It's just like in the grand jury that votes to no bill someone for an indictment. You and I can be accused. We can be accused by Satan. And in fact, when you think about it, as we continue to sin post our faith in Christ. Think about this. Without our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, would the accuser be successful? That answer is yes. That answer is yes. But because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the charge doesn't stick because we don't stand in our own righteousness. We stand before The Father with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Just as verse 33 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? What's the answer? It is God who justifies. It's God who keeps the charge from sticking because we have the blood covering of Jesus Christ. It's not that God looks down and says... I think that person's living a pretty good life. I think that we'll let them pass. That would be acquiescence, wouldn't it? That would mean that God wouldn't be holy because he would acquiesce to our sin. But that's not what's happening here. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Who is he who condemns? Now let's think about this. In a regular trial setting, you first have the charge, right? Then you have the trial. Is the charge valid? Yes. Then you go on trial. What's the verdict? What's the verdict? In other words, what's the punishment? Look at 34 again. Who is he who condemns? 
It is Christ who died and furthermore also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Right now, right now, as Satan is in the heavenly court accusing us day and night, Jesus is on his throne interceding for you and for me. The charge isn't valid. The condemnation isn't valid. Not because we are living a life of righteousness. Because there's no amount of righteousness in our own flesh that would make us capable of standing before a holy and righteous God. Nothing. But because we are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, because we have the blood covering of Jesus, because he paid the sin debt, it says it is Christ who died and furthermore is risen. In other words, the penalty had to be paid for the Father to maintain his holiness. And Christ paid that penalty for you and me. And because he paid that penalty, the charge is not valid. And the penalty has been paid. So just as Paul wrote at the beginning of Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation for who are in Christ Jesus. Christ is making intercession for us. The writer of Hebrews referred to the intercessory work of Jesus Christ in Hebrews 7, starting in verse 22 through 25. It says, But by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, referring to Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ's intercessory work, his intercession, his pleading our case, to the Heavenly Father, happens even at this very moment for you and for me. What does he intercede with? Definitely not our life, right? If we'd have to be honest with ourselves. You know, if you're charged with a crime, the attorney representing you pleads your case, doesn't he? in the court of law here in this earth in which we find ourselves in. You go hire an attorney, they plead you. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's interceding for us on our behalf, not by my works of merit, not by your works of merit. He's interceding for us based upon the satisfaction that he gave the heavenly father through his payment for us on the cross. That's a wonderful thing. 
We don't get to walk into the heavenly throne room with boldness because we're doing okay this week. We get to go before the heavenly throne because of the righteous blood covering of Jesus Christ. Why is this important? It's so important for us as we walk through our life to realize that we are able to stand before God because of Jesus Christ and not our works. And there's a number of reasons for this. In human tendencies, when we get off the path, what's the number one thing that people go and do? They hide, don't they? They hide. You see it every day that believers, when they aren't successful in living their Christian life, what's the first thing that suffers? It's church attendance. Like somehow God's knowledge of you only exists during this one hour on a Sunday. That's kind of silly when you think about it, but it just as it's silly in that extreme, it was also silly to think that Adam and Eve were hiding from God in the garden. But what ends up happening is, is that as people start resting in their own works, as they think, man, look at me, I'm doing pretty good. I'm reading my Bible. I'm having a decent prayer life. I'm attending church on a regular basis. And then the moment they trip up with sin, they start trying to remove themselves from God. They don't read the Bible as much. They don't come to Him in prayer. They don't associate with the fellowship of believers. You'll even hear people voice something like this. I'll come back to church. This really frustrates me as a pastor. I'll come back to church when I get my life back in order. No, come back to church and your life will be back in order. It's recognizing there's no way that we can stand here before God in our own righteousness. We stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, not only is it important for us to have that down in our own personal life, but it's also extremely important that we have that down as we exercise the mission of the church. The mission of the church. And we can think of it in two ways. One is, is that we can think of it as we build up the existing body of believers within our church. The answer is always Jesus Christ. The answer is always Jesus Christ. Worship service is always about Jesus Christ. We worship Jesus Christ. But in addition to that, part of our responsibility, because we've been given the Great Commission, is to go out 
and witness to a lost world about Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, people have gotten off track. And what people will try to do first is, is that they will try to make a sinner moral. A sinner moral. And what I mean by that is, is that if you look at how the church advertises itself, and I was guilty of this before I started preaching verse by verse. If you preach topically, well, you got to have a catchy series, right? And you got to advertise that catchy series. We used to do that. And so in that catchy series, you'd advertise this in the newspaper. At one point, we'd send out billboards. We had postcards. Five steps to this. Four steps to that. You know what I'm talking about. Five steps to a happy marriage. Six steps or seven steps to godly finances. Whatever. If they, were, they were topical in nature. And the church sends those out. And what they're trying to do in sending those out is, is they reach out to somebody that is having marital problems. Or they're having financial problems. And you're trying to set the hook if you will, by the topical advertisement, it doesn't work because that's not the problem. That's a symptom of the disease. The disease is sin and the answer is what? Jesus Christ. No matter what the problem is, whether it's finances, whether it's marriage, whether it's a substance addiction, whatever the problem is, the answer is always Jesus Christ. And the beauty of that is, is when we all get on the same page, when the answer in the question is, who shall bring a charge against who God's elect The answer, it is God who justifies. How does he justify? Through the work of Jesus Christ. That is universal. So some poor soul out in the community gets a postcard that says, how to fix your marriage. I don't have any problem with my marriage. I may have problems with finances, so I'm going to throw the card away. But they're still going to hell. See, the universal solution to all of mankind's problems is Jesus Christ. And that has to be the focus of the church is that Christ is the answer. Regardless of when we get off the path, we recognize that, well, I'm not standing here in my own righteousness. I'm standing in the righteousness of Christ. Praise God. So therefore I can exalt exalt the name of Jesus Christ because I don't stand upon my own works of righteousness. As I interact in my community, I tell them about the power of Jesus Christ, regardless of what problems they are encountering. When we minister to our brothers and sisters in Christ here as a fellowship, The answer is always in 
Jesus Christ. We aren't standing in our own strength. We're standing in the power of Jesus Christ. And as I was preparing this sermon, it reminded me of that great hymn, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. And based upon what I've just laid out this morning, listen to the words and see how wonderful this hymn fits for our belief as Christians. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that we stand before you not in our feeble attempts of righteousness, but we stand before you with the blood covering of Jesus Christ. We stand before you with the awesome power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that we might always recognize that it's the power of Christ that saves us. It's the power of Christ that moves us to holiness. And it will be the power of Christ alone that calls us home as we stand before you complete face to face. I pray, Lord, that we might recognize this as individuals. I pray, Lord, that we might rest in it on a daily basis. I pray, Lord, that this might be the gospel that we share both individually and collectively as a church. I pray, Lord, that if there's someone listening through sermon audio that's never given their life to Christ, they've never totally rested in the power of Christ, they've never asked for forgiveness of their sin and repented, and turn their life over to you. I pray, Lord, that they do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, millcreekchurch.org.